talking to Brené Brown on her podcast is a massive performance moment. First of all, she gives you no briefing as to what the podcast's about. Really? Just So you just rock up with a blank canvas? You just rock up with a blank canvas. 45 minutes into it, she goes, all right, Michael, so coach me. Did I know that she was going to ask me to coach her? No. To sell a million books. I know. Seriously, yeah. like... Do you just Impossible. sit back and look in the mirror at times and just go, <laughs> you're the man, like you flex? I, I don't because I think if you can sell 10,000 copies of a book, you've done amazingly well. That's a lot. If you can sell 100,000 copies of your book, you are in an elite. But then to go another zero. Yeah, it, but, that, that, but, that, but that then is out beyond your control. That is a bit of magic fairy dust. It's suddenly cracking. It's escaping gravity. And that's part of how we're trying to unweird coaching. It's like, it's, forget the kind of woo-woo definitions. It's, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Yeah, like a minute longer. And your advice monster looms up out of the dark and goes, oh, I'm going to add some value to this conversation. I'm going to pretend to listen for a bit longer. But now I'm just waiting for you to take a breath so I can interrupt with my ideas, my opinions, my thoughts, my suggestions. Do you reinvent yourself due to boredom? Do you reinvent yourself? due to challenge? Is it fear of irrelevance? Is it compulsive striving? Or is it something we've totally missed? I don't. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hi, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Michael Bungay-Stania, or MBS as he's affectionately known, is at the forefront of shaping how organizations around the world make being coach-like an essential leadership competency. His book, which I've got dog-eared, I bought this book years ago, well before I met this man, The Coaching Habit, is the best-selling coaching book of the century with over one million copies sold. Michael grew up in Canberra, where he flourished as a child. After studying English and law at ANU, he moved to the UK to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where he tells me his only significant achievement was falling in love with a Canadian, which is why he now lives in Toronto, having spent time along the way in London and Boston. Michael founded Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organisations transform from advice-driven to curiosity-led. Box of Crayons have trained hundreds of thousands of managers to be more coach-like, with clients ranging from Microsoft to Gucci. MBS is a compelling speaker. He lights up audiences. He's an amazing facilitator. He combines practicality, humor, and an unprecedented degree of engagement with his audience. Michael was banned from his high school graduation for the balloon incident. He was sued by one of his law school professors for defamation, and he recently did a live coaching session. This made me nervous uh, with Brené Brown on her podcast, which we just have to talk about today. Yeah, that was great. Michael Bungay Stadio, MBS, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. That is a really nice and slightly over. I'm slightly overwhelmed by that introduction, and I actually knew what was coming. So. For everybody listening in, I am quite normal. <laughs> if it makes it sound at all that I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty down to earth. You're very normal, but that's why you get so much work. And I know now you've got a list of clients waiting to work with you. Awesome when you get to that stage in life where you say, I only want to do 30 keynotes a year. I'm going to hand pick them. We were introduced during one of the COVID lockdowns. I think you yeah. were able to get here from Canada. We were back at work and a good mate, I've got a shout out to him, Podrake O'Sullivan or Pod. We yeah. had a coffee and that's how we first connected. That's right. 
Yeah. And I've loved your book, by the way. I, I, I've kept it and I've used it to do some of my own thinking about getting fit and getting strong. So we, we traded books, I think, on that day. And I, I really appreciate your work. Like I love hearing that. Are you lifting heavy shit and are you getting your heart rate up? They're the, the two exactly. big things. Yeah. Exactly. Lift heavy, heavy shit, get your heart rate up. Are your T-shirts getting tighter? <laughs> from lifting heavy shit. You know, actually, my T-shirts are getting less tight because of losing weight because of lifting heavy shit. So it's, it's, Good. it's trending in the right direction that way first. Lose Good. a bit of weight, then maybe put some weight on. Okay, yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy. Now, yeah. a couple of fun quotes to start for you. Mm -hmm. uh, this was one of your audience participants who said, you are like Simon Sinek, but funnier. That's my favorite audience quote. <laughs> That's a I'm good like, one, right? Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Simon Sinek, but funny and a little bit more intellect. We'll just go to the next level. Now, the next quote, <laughs> a life lived in fear is a life half lived. Can you tell me the reputable source of that quote? That is uh, one of the great movies of all time, one of the great Australian movies of all time, um, Strictly Boring. Man, I love that movie. Oh, this idea. I mean, it's a classic story of the ugly duckling, the dancing set in the suburbs of Sydney and uh, breaking the rules of the very strict ballroom dancing fraternity of 1970s Australia and how Scott, our hero, but Fran, who turns out to be the real hero of this uh, story, break free, become the best expressions of themselves. And it's actually Fran who gives the story its heart because she's the one who says, a life lived in fear is a life half lived. Oh, I love that quote. Thank you for reminding me of it. Wizard, who would have thought that you could have done a quote from... Did you even know the movie? Have you watched it? I've seen it but years ago. Yeah, he's, yeah we just, just need to stop this podcast and just play the movie because that, that that's the key takeaway from this whole podcast. If you haven't seen Strictly Boring, go see Strictly Boring. You're terrible, Muriel. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's Muriel's Wedding. Oh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> similar, similar time and similar genre, but not quite strictly Let's boring. cut that bit out. There was the bit they're driving along going, see your porpoise spit. What was the favourite quote when they're going along? I don't remember that. Yeah. yeah, we might cut that out. A wizard might just leave that in, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't mix your genres. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a rough frame for today. And, and in researching you, there are so many different ways. So we've got about an hour, give or take, mm. so coaching have to talk yeah. about that curiosity yep and then reinvention i really do want to know how do you keep going reinventing it's a good drawing question. from the well yeah yeah it's a really good question I'm, I'm i'm wrestling with that at the moment so it's going to be helpful for me to talk that through Ooh, do you want to change yeah. the order or do you want to follow the script well, let's, let's go go with follow the script and we'll just see where it takes us okay. yeah coaching first i've got to ask this is from me being an author to sell a million books I know. Seriously, yeah. like, do you just Impossible. sit back and look in the mirror at times and just go, <laughs> <laughs> you're the man, like you flex? I, um, no, I, I don't because I go, look, The Coaching Habit is a really good book. And I, I know because I, I, I rewrote it seven or eight times before I found, and then got turned down by a publisher. So I ended up self-publishing it. And it was actually the number of rejections I got that helped home this book to be as tight as it is. And it's got a really clear arc and it's there's not a, an ounce of fat on it. And it answers a need, which is to kind of unweird coaching and make it feel useful and practical to regular people, not just to people who are kind of into coaching already. And, you know, I've now written eight or nine books. And I think if you can sell 10,000 copies of a book, you've done amazingly well. That's a lot. 
It's 10,000 people buying your book. If you can sell 100,000 copies of your book, you are in an elite. Like there's a very small number of people. And I reckon with focus and hustle and dedication over years um, and with a bit of a, a, a presence, you could you maybe get to 100,000 if you're lucky. Anything we've, we've just that, got there. We've just got there on match fit. Well, so. There we go. So that's like that's you hustling and, hard and doing it for years and championing it and talking about it incessantly and word of mouth. So I step back from that and go, oh my god, a hundred thousand, and I'm still catching up with it. You, you know, lag time. How others see yeah. like a hundred thousand sales. Really, that this this country guy in me that doesn't want to look like a word that rhymes with banker and starts with W. You know, being grandiose about selling a hundred grand. But then to go another zero, yeah. It, but that, that, but that, but that then is out beyond your control. That is a bit of magic fairy dust. It's suddenly cracking. It's escaping gravity, and suddenly the the book sales are a power law. So once you get to in the top whatever, you keep selling because you become a classic and you keep getting recommended and you, the book keeps popping up. So I, I don't know how to do this. I've done it once. I've written nine books. You know, I've had one book that sold more than a million. I've had two, I think, that have sold over a hundred thousand, and I've had what's that leave five or six that haven't. <laughs> so it, I, it's, it's. Um, I'll take all the credit that I deserve from this, but recognize to sell a million copies, you're like that's the universe taking it on and doing the work for me. Yeah. I see you smile. There's a there's a beautiful reflection there where I can just feel the. Oh, it, it's a bloody good achievement. It's, it is fantastic. And, you know, there's one part of me that goes, oh, man, you know, I've written four books or three books since then, and none of them have taken off like the coaching habit. And there's one part of me that goes, oh, yeah, maybe I've, maybe I've lost it. <laughs> maybe I don't have it. But the real part of me goes, look, it's, it's basically impossible to sell a million copies of a book. So the fact that you've done it is a – Fabulous, but really, what's fabulous is when I think of the impact it's had and the the number of people who've shifted the way they think about showing up and being curious and acting as a type a certain type of leader. I'm like that's what I'm really proud of, and I don't even know any of these people, and that's fantastic for me. I mean, this idea of creating an idea that spreads enough that it touches people that you don't even have to know or see or who don't even know have to know who you are. That to me is a real legacy. Hmm. Why do you think it was so successful? Well, first of all, it's the, is, it was wisdom that was well-tested because I'd been teaching it for five or six or seven years. So I had nuanced, exact language about this works, this doesn't work. So it's like I've been A-B testing ideas for seven years. Secondly, the fact that I had kept writing versions of it and it kept getting turned down by, by Workman, a New York publisher, to the extent that I finally went, okay, this is it. <laughs> this is the idea for the book. Take it or leave it. And they said, well, we're leaving it because we're, um, you know, we don't like it enough. And, ha! Uh, sucked in now. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm doing my best not to gloat, but I do, I do feel smug about that. So, so it had a single idea. It had a clean arc. I try and write the shortest books I can that are still useful. So it was short. It is designed so that it doesn't feel scary. I had a very specific person in mind, you know, um, a mid-level woman works in an organization, has a team, likes a job, walks into the airport bookstore in the days when there were airport bookstores that sold books, sees the book, picks it up, goes, 
this could be helpful and it looks readable. I could perhaps read most of this on a flight and it will fit in my handbag. So I had a very clear person that I was designing this book for and writing this book for. And then it turns out it's a book that people buy for other people. So people are buying it for their team. They're buying it for their clients. They're buying it for um, people around them. And when that happens, you start getting this kind of incredible momentum. Yeah, I've bought it for multiple clients, especially when I'm working with an exec. Larger proportion of male exec clients tend to be attracted to my coaching than women. And they're struggling with this coaching notion because they've been good tellers as far as they've been the leader when they were a young man and young woman for some of the women I've given it to as well. And you you leave your shoes and your authentic personality at the door and you have a model where you tell. It's very didactic, I'm in charge, you're not. And then when we suddenly, suddenly flip that and say, you have to have conversations, there's two ears, one mouth, that's about the range you should have when you're engaged. It doesn't compute. And some of the evidence based coaching books and having studied coaching cycle have a lot of great books, but they don't resonate with the average leader who hasn't got a degree in psychology. I wrote wrote this book for the average leader, which is like, let me unweird this for you. And let me make the reaction I love and I hear often enough is, oh, if this is coaching, I could probably give this a crack <laughs> mm. because I get I get some of the tools, I get some of the mechanics. It, it's still, I mean, the reason I wrote The Advice Trap, which is the kind of sister book to the coaching habit, is there's a, quite a number of people who read the coaching habit and go, man, you've given me the tools, thank you, and they start shifting their behavior. And there's also, though, a number of people who go, thanks, seven good questions, some I sense of what a habit is, some tips on how to ask a question well. And even though they're like, I get the tools and I'm committed to the idea and I like the idea of being more coach-like and staying curious longer, they're like, man, it is hard. <laughs> I'm still defaulting to advice giving. So what's going on with that? And in the advice trap, we get into how do you tame your advice monster? You know, in the advice monster, there are three, three versions of the advice monster, tell it and save it and control it. And this, it's my job to have all the answers. It's my job to save all the people. It's my job to control the universe. Those are, you know, let's call them ego states that uh, can be very helpful for a short time, but are not helpful as a longer term strategy. And, you know, part of what I try and do is I try and, take ideas that are complex and make them feel simple and understandable. And often a metaphor does that. So the advice monster, people know what an advice monster is. I'm like, you know, when somebody starts talking and your advice monster looms up out of the dark and goes, oh, I'm going to add some value to this conversation. I'm going to pretend to listen for a bit longer, but now I'm just waiting for you to take a breath so I can interrupt with my ideas, my opinions, my thoughts, my suggestions. And I'm like, that's that. We've all got one. It's never going to go away. The job is to see if you can tame your advice monster because the shift of behavior we're after is not never give advice because that feels impossible and it's also not that useful. It's can you slow down the rush to action and advice giving? Can you stay curious a little bit longer? And that's part of how we're trying to unweird coaching. It's like forget the kind of woo-woo definitions it's can you stay curious a little bit longer, yeah, like a minute longer, and then another minute longer, and then maybe another minute longer. And then that, that actually changes the way that you lead. Hey, it's me, 
Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. You've been coaching me through your books and you must get this from a lot of people because you have the conversation, who's been a coach or mentor? We asked that at the end of this podcast, who's been a mentor or mentors has that has mm. really influenced you. A book can take on a whole deeper form than I ever first thought. You know, it can literally change the way people operate. It can change lives. What I love about The Advice Monster or the book The Advice Trap is one, the authenticity that this was you, okay? It was you. And, and, and I like this, that a lot of your ideas germinate from, ah, oh, stuff up here, or well, yeah, exactly. I've made this mistake, and then you go, oh, everyone else is making this. Yeah. And, and two, N equals one me, when I first started podcasting, and Wiz, do you remember this when I first sat here? Because I was so used to speaking, keynote speaker. What do we do as keynote speakers, MBS? We tell. We tell yeah. stories. And if it's a short, sharp, punchy keynote, 45 minutes, take them on a story, bit of a high, drop yeah. it. Here's the five things, mic drop, catch you later. Don't ask many questions. Not not through ego about me, but it, you just make the story and it's a yeah. high level. So when yeah. I started podcasting, it was like that. And I listened to a few back and I went, Oh, do you remember that, Wiz? I was talking over people. It was, I was horrible. And and I read your book. Well, I, I'd read it. I, I scanned back over it and thought, ah, oh, it's bloody, it's the monster coming out thinking that I have to add and show that I understand or that I am an intellect. And I think some of the best interviews we do now, you, you know, shut them up. Yeah, yeah. What you're pointing to, which is really essential and is often lost or, or not seen because it's a little subcurrent, but I think it's actually the powerful engine that drives coaching and with it curiosity is that curiosity is an act of empowerment because what you do is you move the spotlight from you to them. And part of the deeper resistance people have around coaching or being more coach-like if you're a leader is it's you giving up some control. It's you giving up some power. It's you moving from certainty to ambiguity. Because when you are talking, giving advice, keynoting, talking over people, it, it might be wrong, it might be inappropriate, but you it's clear. <laughs> I, am, I know what I'm doing and I'm adding value at this moment. When you ask a question, first of all, there's this moment where you go, was that a good question? Did it land? Did they understand it? What happens if they come back with a nonsense answer? You know, that's ludicrous. <laughs> um, how do I deal with this awkward silence? Because it's been, you know, one third of a second since they, I asked it and they, they haven't answered it right away. So <laughs> that feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So you, there is a, you step into a place of service and a place of ambiguity. So it is a, one level of coaching is, have some good questions and, you know, the coaching habits, like here's seven that you might want to try out, but the deeper level is going, how do I be of service? How do I give up power? How do I find a way to move a spotlight from me to another person for their sake? So they get to, and this is a quote from Peter Block, who, um, you know, is one of the, the kind of mentors and coaches to me, uh, the, the writer, Peter Block, he goes, my job is to give people responsibility for their own freedom. 
And part of what you realize that if you if your default response is advice giving, if your default response is let me tell you what to do, you are depriving the other people of the ability to step up and own their own sense of self, their own sense of freedom, their own sense of their own access to the next best version of who they're trying to become. I do want to cover the seven essential questions, but can we just pause on that in a moment? Because the thought is bubbling. And if I don't ask this, I will go to bed tonight and <laughs> be thinking, gosh, I should have asked that colorful, bright man this question. And and it's it's for me, but it's also for a lot of clients that I know listen to this podcast. If I think about how I show up in a day, in a week, it's multiple different domains. Mm. Uh, it could be a keynote where it's more telling and storytelling, yeah. podcast, which is more listening and it storytelling and creating that story coaching which can vary because sometimes yeah. you tell sometimes you show sure. sometimes That's you right. ask you know, i facilitate groups the work i do with mental skills can be a variation mm. media work is short sharp you, you go in as the expert you know, might yeah. drop leave and, and you do similar so the question do you have a process for shifting state and, and getting really clear in the message that you're about to deliver, the, the format you're about to deliver in? Heavy question, huh? Yeah, it's, inter- it's an interesting one. And my pause is I don't, have a, I don't have a clear process around it. But there's some conversation around how much Michael is showing up. <laughs> you know, so when I, when I give a, a keynote, for instance, so my keynotes are actually pretty facilitative. You know, within two minutes of a keynote, I've got the audience talking to itself. There's probably a third of a keynote where I'm on stage watching the audience interacting because I'm kind of facilitating a, a large scale. But that means two thirds of the keynote, I'm in performance mode. And typically I've got, I, I've learned my script. You know, I'm like, I've got my beats. So there's the appropriate pause for, for a joke. I know my physical movement, so I will walk and stop to make the point, I will, I will do this thing to kind of make the story and get a, get a laugh for the story. So I think perhaps the difference is I know what my default mode is and my default mode is curiosity. Um, my default mode is how do I be present to what's going on? So, you know, like you, I have a podcast and my goal in a podcast is to have to have my guest say it at least once, oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> like if I can get that, I'm like, that that means that I am being really present to them and really present to what's being said. And I'm trying to find a way to open up the deeper insight around that. You know, can you I'm, say I'm, that to me a few times in response just to fill up <laughs> yeah. my cup? Because we're, we're, yeah, we're similar. Like, honestly, in a podcast, we want people to go one of two things. Like, oh, that's a really good question. But you've got to be careful. I think people who are podcast savvy as far as being interviewed sometimes say that as a default. Yeah. yeah? yeah but a genuine good. one is you can see someone go, oh, <laughs> yeah. that's a great. Or I've never been asked that before. Right. And there's a kind of uh, a little bit of a, a beat or two while they're trying to figure out what an answer is rather than having a quick answer to it. I guess the question that I am sitting with, Andrew, is I am trying to go what's of service to the people I'm in service to. Um, and sometimes that's kind of pushing them around and telling them to do stuff. You know, sometimes it's being quite directive. I use that as a, a barometer in my coaching because there are some questions I ask and then I go, 
who's more interested in the answer to that? Is it me or is it them? Because <laughs> sometimes I'm asking it because I'm like, I need you to explain this to me. And that turns out that that's not that helpful to the other person I'm coaching because they, they already know the answer. What I'm trying to do is ask questions that they go, that's really helpful for me. So here's my answer. It's taking me a while to get there, but here's my answer. It's good. This is a, this is a two-way conversation in process. And for people watching right. this on YouTube, we'll actually see you reflecting. I like this. It's good. Yeah. One is to be kind of going, how, who, who am I serving and how do I serve them best? And then the second is that insight that you'll know better than I, which is that your body leads your brain. So your physical stance is kind of what sets you up to perform in the way you want to perform. So when I'm doing media, I'm often sitting on my shirt or on my jacket if I'm wearing a jacket. It's kind of a, a, a friend of mine gave me this media training, which is like, so you don't have your things kind of rumple up and get around your ears. You sit on the tail of your jacket and it just holds everything down. And that kind of just tells me that I'm in, I'm in media mode. You know, when I'm in podcast mode, I've got, I've got my office set up in a certain way and I've got my papers aligned in a certain way. And that primes me to be a certain way. You know, when I'm on a keynote, particularly if it's a larger crowd, I'll often kind of do a little bit of bouncing on my toes beforehand to kind of regulate the the nervous energy that I might have and kind of go, it's, it's like, oh, I can feel the adrenaline. So how do I not come in too hot? <laughs> you know, not go, ah! You're going to like fuzzy <laughs> What has he taken? Yeah. Somebody once said I was the bastard child of Fuzzy Bear and Mr. Incredible. And I'm like, that's, that's like Mr. Incredible doing the, the middle-aged, out-of-weight shape moment. I'm like, oh, is that Mr. Incredible? Like, I'd take that because he's jacked. And like, <laughs> At his best, he's jacked, yeah. So I think there's a, there's a way that I don't really think about it that much, but I go through some physical routines that set me up to be in the appropriate state for the person with whom I'm about, or the people who I'm about to interact yeah, totally get that. And for anyone who does, everyone performs. It just can be different levels. You know, your yeah. TED Talk, which has now had 1.5 million downloads, that's a big performance moment. But it's a performance moment as much when you go home to a, a partner, kids, family, or, you know, meeting people out at social settings. So stepping into those performance yeah. moments and, you know, my bias is absolutely ground yourself, breathe. You're yeah. not a head on a stick. If you calm your physiology, yeah. your brain will follow suit. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I mostly operate as if I am a head on a stick. So that idea of trying to get a little connected to my physical state is not something that comes naturally to me. I, I've kind of got to work at it a bit, but I get there eventually. I'm still giggling at the visual of the love child of Fossey P. Bear. So we go from ah to some sort of structure, the seven essential yeah. questions. I have used this so many times. And again, it's so simple, but there is a real framework behind it. So I'll go through the seven essential questions and then you can pick up on either all or which bits you would like to share with our audience. Yeah. So the seven essential questions are according to your MBS in The Coaching Habit, which has sold over 1 million copies. I know. Is number one, what's on your mind? Two, and what else? The acronym AWE. Three, what's the real challenge here for you? Four, what do you really want from me? Five, how can I help? Six, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? And seven, what was most useful for you? It's the reflection at the end. Mm. Sounds so simple. It is simple. Um, it's difficult because, you know, simple isn't easy. It's difficult to 
know those questions, master them, feel relaxed about only having seven questions that you use for most of the coaching conversations you have. What would I reflect on around that? I would reflect that if you're listening, pick the question that sounds most interesting to you and go, why don't I test that out? So let me tell you the context where you might use the questions. And then the goal is to pick one of them because part of this whole thing about coaching is if you want to try and shift your behavior and be more coach-like, everything we know about habit building is like do it in small steps, but do it consistently. So what's on your mind is the key, the, the kickstart question. And it's about accelerating into a topic quickly. It's it's built on the insight that certainly in organizational life, nobody has time for a long, hour-long, rambly coaching session. It's got to be fast. It's got to be 10 minutes or less, really. And what's on your mind helps you get there faster. It's turned out to be a really radical way people rethink their one-to-one meetings as well. It's like, let's not report out. Let's use our one-to-one meetings to either celebrate or to solve problems. And what's on your mind will get you to one of those two issues. Then I'm going to combine the the focus question, what's the real challenge here for you, and the awesome question, and what else, because they work really nicely as a script. The key insight is to say most people in wherever you are in your life, in your organization, big or small, in your team, in your family life, they're busy trying to solve the wrong problems because we get seduced into the first challenge, feeling like it's the challenge, whereas it's just the first challenge, and it's almost certainly not the real challenge. So the script I use is what's the real challenge here for you? And what else is a real challenge? And what else is a real challenge? So what's the real challenge here for you? And the power of the and what else question in this context and other contexts is that it just says their first answer is not their only answer. And it's not even their best answer. So it allows you to squeeze the juice um, out of any question that you ask. And part of the magic is that people don't even hear you asking it. All they hear, all they experience is you maintaining the space of curiosity. Then there's the foundation question. It's the what do you want? And it's right in the middle. It's the fourth of seven. And I think it's the hardest question to answer. Therefore, often the most powerful question to answer. I don't use this that often in my coaching, but I use it when I'm trying to break through to something or I'm tr- or we feel stuck or there's some sort of frustration happening. I'm like, so what do you want? And what else do you want? And what else do you want? So what do you really want? And honestly, if you can ask that question of yourself on a daily basis, your life gains clarity and focus. The sixth question is the strategic question, which is like, if I'm saying yes to this, what must I say no to? So the power of that is it makes, it acknowledges that most of us overcommit. Yes is much easier to say than no. And it helps you understand that for your yes to have any real meaning, you've got to have some real clear no's. There are implications for your yes if it's a real yes. You've got to say no to a bunch of stuff to make that yes feel real. So it makes clear the opportunity cost of making that choice. Then there's the um, the lazy question. And I know it doesn't sound like a lazy question, which is like, how can I help? But it's called a lazy question because it stops all of the keeners who are listening, which is most of you, who love to go, I already know how I can help. And I am currently doing an intervention with you because I've already decided what the thing is that you need. So 
if you've got any temptation to jump in and rescue and save or just start giving people advice, what this does is it slows it down. It also invites the other person to take responsibility for their freedom by saying, this is what I want and naming that. And then the final question is the learning question, which is what was most useful or most valuable here for you. And the power of that is it helps people extract the value of the thing that's just happened because people don't learn when you tell them stuff and they don't even learn when they do stuff. They learn when they have a moment to reflect on what just happened. So those are the seven questions and a kind of bit of context behind each one. And if you're listening, which you are, the challenge I would give you is not to go, oh, those are seven interesting questions. The challenge is, well, which of those questions feels most useful or most valuable for you? Which one could you see experimenting with? Which one would be the easiest one to start with? Which one, if I gave you the challenge of, you need to ask it three times a day, which is the question that you would pick? And then maybe who would you do ask it with? I, you know, is there a person who you're like, yeah, I'm going to see them once or twice or three times this week, or we're going to interact. Maybe they're the person that I'll test this question with. And what I'm doing here is actually starting to lay the foundations of what it means to build a, a coaching habit, which is, you know, when, when this experience happens, I'm going to do A rather than B. I love seeing the depth and the storytelling behind that. As I, as I rattled out at the start, it sounds really simple, but as you get yeah. deep, it's layered. There's context and construct, and you can put a whole lot of frameworks behind each one of those. It's true. I, I want to... I, I want to get you, I want to ask you if you can combine two themes we've spoken about. I'm, I'm so curious, which yeah. we'll get to in a moment, curiosity. See the impact you're having on me? <laughs> we talk about that state management. So before you do a big performance moment, I would imagine interviewing or talking to Brené Brown on her podcast is a massive performance it was. moment. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. So, so how did you prepare for that physically? Yeah. And then what questions on those seven essential questions did you run through to help you? Because you did a, a live coaching session. Now, I, I do some live coaching. I, I build it into my keynotes. You, know, you do the reps and sets in a so-called non-pressurized environment, one-on-one -on -one or one to a few. You can pull it out in a keynote in front of a couple of That's thousand. Right. Yeah. Brené Brown, champ. Yeah. And the live coaching session, that's like walking on a tightrope. And I love that you did it. And I love the interview. We'll, we'll play an excerpt. <laughs> but can you take me back, yeah, those those two components, that physical state to get ready? And, and then how did you even think about the question so you were relaxed but prepared? Yeah. Well, it, it started with um, – I had kind of somehow come across Brene's work before she became famous or super famous, before she had her TED Talk, which is what really launched her. And I had connected to the extent that she actually, I've actually blurbed one of her first books. She wrote to me going, Michael, can you blurb this book for me? So you'll find it on the back cover or on the inside cover. You know, this young woman will make, I think has good potential and may go far. Michael Bungay Sanya, you know, it's like... Oh, those days have changed. Now she just calls up presidents and whoever else. But so she'd been on a couple of podcasts I'd done. I'd done a few things that for her. We kind of had a, a connection, but then she just blew up. And, you know, she had an, an email, which is something like Brene Brown at AOL.com. And that stopped working <laughs> because, you know, she has a, a secretary and a secretary has a secretary and she has a team around her and she's besieged by people who want stuff from her. So I sent, I, I tried a few times to reconnect and it didn't work. And I was like, oh, well, 
it was good while it lasted and I hope she's successful. And then I got a note from her, her team saying, Hey, would you like to be on her podcast? And I'm like, are you kidding me? That would be amazing. And two things. First of all, she gives you no briefing as to what the podcast's about. Really? Just so you just rock up with a blank canvas. You just rock up with a blank canvas. The one thing she asks you to send through is a playlist of four or five important songs for you. So I'm like, okay, that's great. And so I was actually in Australia at the time because in the last three or four years, I've been back and forth to Australia because my dad was dying and my mum's trying to figure that out as well. So I happened to be back in Australia when this was being done. So, so I, I was kind of, I was anxious about it. You know, the two weeks beforehand, I'm a trying to listen to all the podcast interviews she's done with other people. So I have a sense of her style. B, I'm trying to reread bits of my own books to try and remember what I said because I'm like I'm not even sure what book you're talking about. You know, which one? Are we, which are we? What are we going to dive into here? And it was at four o'clock in the morning, Canberra time. So, so how was my physical state? You know, I was like, I'm I'm a morning person, but I'm like, it was four o'clock in the morning. So I have, I have my little, I have, I'm in my childhood bedroom. Like this is literally the bedroom I was a two-year-old in, and I'm staying there because I'm living with my my parents, and that brings its own complications because you know we are shaped by our environment. So I don't know if anybody listening had the experience of going back to their childhood bedrooms or houses, but you kind of become the surly seventeen-year-old you were when you left home. So I'm like <laughs> trying to be an evolved fifty-year-old or fifty-five-year-old, however I was, and at the same time feeling like this kind of sullen, surly seventeen-year-old. Anyway, so so I, I've, I've been sweating it a bit. I am nervous, but I've also done a lot of podcasts and and I know about state management. So I'm doing kind of breathing and settling and holding it lightly and going, that's fascinating and kind of unclenching my hands. And I have a little tool I use to help me with state management. It's called this, not that. It's a list of seven words, seven pairs of words that talk about me in my best state and me when I'm kind of 15% off my game. So it's things like provocative, not sycophantic, stepping forward rather than stepping back, holding it lightly rather than treating it seriously. The Manifesto of Insignificance, which is a blog post I wrote years ago about how in the big scheme of things it doesn't matter that much versus, ooh, this really matters. So I'm trying to, I'm using all of that to try and put me in the best possible state. Anyway, then we show up and we've got an audio recorder playing. And we've also got Zoom set up so that she and I can see each other and kind of have that human connection through the camera. Anyway, two minutes into it, the camera fails. So now it's four o'clock in the morning. I've got my lights up. I'm sweating, but there's no camera. So I'm really blind to what's going on and how she's reacting. <laughs> and I'm just going Disaster. Off. Well, it's I'm like, it's I'm dancing in the unknown at the moment. 45 minutes into it, she goes, all right, Michael, so coach me. Did I know that she was going to ask me to coach her? No, she'd given me no warning that that was going to happen. So I was like, oh, I was like, of course. And I, I like you, have done a certain amount of public coaching. And I've, done, and I've taught my seven questions a lot of times. So I'm like, I immediately was like, I, so I need to try and role model the best of these coaching questions that I have. And I need to try and be bring a presence to this. 
And, you know, and I need not to screw it up because I'm coaching Brené Brown and this is a podcast that's going to be listened to by a bunch of people and it will either make it or break it. So, you know, we get into the conversation. I'm like, okay, so what's what's the real challenge? What's on your mind, Brené? And I think I only asked, I only used like three or four of the questions from the seven. But if you if people choose to listen to it, I think what they will notice is how much silence is in the conversation. Because I would ask a question. It's probably, the, so what's the real challenge here for you? Or what do you want? Because those are the two questions that typically provoke the opportunity for deepest reflection. And I would ask a question. And I would hear nothing. And I can see nothing. <laughs> and part of me is going, hello, hello, is this, is this, is, hello, is this mic on? That in my head. And part of me is going, what coaching often does, it just allows people permission and space to think. So shut up, Michael. One of the things that you teach is ask a question and then be quiet and listen to the answer. You've already asked the question. <laughs> so the job now is to be quiet and then listen to the answer. And, you know, the feedback I get from people who listen to that are the silence is the act of mastery. You know, the questions are good, but it's that holding the space blind, coaching unexpectedly, not knowing where this is going, feeling a certain amount of pressure because I'm like, I, I also want this to be successful in a performative way. And it was a sweaty palm moment for sure. <laughs> what else is a challenge here for you, do you think? This is a challenge, at least feels like a challenge to me. I think my primary role at this point in our organization is context and connective tissue and adding color and helping people understand how a million different things that we're doing fit together. Mm -hmm. And I'm failing at it. Right. I'm just not doing it. There's two observations I'd like to make on that. The first one is I love seeing, even at your level of mastery and writing and success, that you still got really bloody nervous leading up to it. And it's when you have those moments and you go, oh, I, I had a presentation recently, which was a big group. I don't have permission to, sh to share, but it's you know, a big group. It's taken me years to get in front of this group. And I was shitting myself. And then I just went, I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times. So that monkey voice starts inside. Oh, what if you stuff up? What if you say the wrong thing? And then, and then you just go, okay, be nervous, but align my nerves, get them working for me. I could see when you were talking about that, you had that dance. Yeah. Second, I love though, when you got into it, that then you obviously settled into it, couldn't see her reset. And you just went to what you'd done multiple yeah. times and holding that space. Again, I've had to learn this. I coach a CEO of a large Australian organization and coach a number of executives that report to this CEO and, and this man. And I've told him that I'm onto him because when I first started working with him, he'd ask a question and he just looks at you and goes, Oh, 
And you've done beautifully because you do that to most people and they interject because they can't wait the three or four seconds. So I know he uses this. And and we have coaching sessions and sometimes it's sitting in that reflective space for 20 or 30 seconds. It it just feels so long, but I've I've learned to enjoy that. And then some of his direct reports, and I don't share anything obviously with a client with direct reports, even though I coach them, they'll all say, oh yeah, the the boss, can you teach me some of these skills? Because when I talk to him, he holds a space and I get really nervous and I'll say, what do you do? It's like, okay, let's breathe in that. So, yeah, I I love seeing, one, that you were nervous, two, that you went into your mastery, and and an extension on two, that the power of cultivating free space is one of my favourite quotes, to sit in space, to create space. Yeah. It's where some of the best learning, some of the best coaching, best interaction happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of my favorite coaching moments came with a, a guy who's a friend of mine and who knew this work pretty well. He had been a facilitator for some of my stuff, but he called me up and he went, Michael, I, I need your coaching. I need you to help me think through this thing. And then he said, so, okay, you always go, well, what's on your mind? So here it is, and he, blah, 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 blah. And then he go, but then you go, oh, so what's the real challenge here for you? And uh, so the real challenge is this. But then, of course, you go, and what else? So what else? Well, it's also this. And then you go, and what? So it's, and then, of course, you go, so what's the real challenge here for you? And he goes, well, it's really this. And then you would probably ask, well, what do you want? And so it was like this 15-minute coaching session where I literally didn't say anything. He just monologued his way through it. And what I'm doing is I'm witnessing it, and I'm being present to it, and I'm holding the space for it, and it is remarkable that if you are trying to coach, if you can show up and be present and see and hear that person, that is such a powerful moment for them already. But here's the twist on this. When you are in a default advice giving mode, oh, let me fix it because of my habits, because of my neuroses, because of my advice monsters, you're not you're not witnessing them. You're not present to them. You're not seeing them. You may think you're helping them, but you know, that's debatable often, you know, it has its roots or one framework to know about that, that might help with this is uh, Martin Buber's framework uh, saying there are two fundamental types of relationship. I, it relationships and I, thou relationships and I, it relationships have some of that, uh, transactional nature to them. Uh, it's more kind of a little more mechanical. I thou relationships are when you're your full, present, messy, glorious, confused self, and so are they. And you can both be present to that. And how rare and actually how fleeting I thou relationships are. That they're they're you know they don't happen that often. But if you can bring that presence and that attention you call that forth from the other person as well and you have these really powerful moments potentially. Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large scale programs to our corporate clients. And we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. 
Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon. So watch this space. We're going to have to get you back. There's about three or four bits of content you have just rattled off so elegantly I could go double click double click double click conscious so I do want to talk to you about curiosity because this is what drives everything and you've even got me thinking in preparation on this interview about my curiosity and how to grow it if in doubt where to go with someone who is one of the world's leaders in coaching and curiosity ask someone who knows them so I did I asked pod what do you can what can you tell me about MBS and curiosity? So Pod said the following MBS is supremely curious and very good at connecting dots as thought or curiosity experiments, as well as connecting people in different conversations. He's also really good at getting his community to get involved in his creative pursuits early, which then leads to them becoming advocates later. This is very clever. Rea funny story. Ask him about the meal at Canberra Parliament House before he went overseas. I think on a Rhodes Scholarship. Ask what he wore and what he nicked. <laughs> so let's separate the two. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want, let's answer the Parliament House one first. Sure. That's got me curious. So I'm a Rhodes Scholar. And, you know, some of you might know what that is. It's a fancy scholarship um, named after Cecil Rhodes. If you win one, you get to go off and study in, in Oxford for a, a period of time. And I, as a 14-year-old, I had been asked by a teacher in my school, well, what do you want to be when you, you know, grow up or go to university or something. And I said, I want to go to Oxford University because my dad is English. I actually went to Oxford University and my dad's a role model for me. And I didn't really know what it even meant, but I'm like, I'll go to Oxford University. And my teacher said, well, for that, you'll need to be a Rhodes Scholar. And I went, noted. Don't know what that means, but it kind of planted a seed. And you know, I did arts law degree in, at ANU, so it's a six-year degree. And in my fourth year, I applied to be a Rhodes Scholar. And I went and I asked the woman how it happened, how it worked. And he goes, well, you send an application and then everybody gets a first interview. And then we go for a short list after that. I went, great. So I sent an application and I got a letter back saying you didn't even get a first interview, which was quite disheartening because she told me that everybody got a first interview. So I was like, how bad did I suck? (laughs) I didn't even, I, I, I missed out on the thing that everybody gets, but I went away for a year and licked my wounds and then came back in my final year at, at university and applied again and and got an interview and got onto the short list. And so the short list, it was you know, eight of us competing for two final scholarships. 
And um, the night before the day of interviews, all eight of us go to Parliament House, like the fancy Parliament House in Canberra. We go into a private dining room with Fred Williams paintings all over the walls. It was, was, um, you know, furniture made out of like beautiful Australian timber. It was amazing. But it was a kind of high pressure dinner because, you know, you're trying to be charming and eloquent and not, you know, not obnoxious and trying to be, you know, catch the key interviewer's eyes. So it's it's massively performative. So I was thinking to myself, okay, so I've seen the competition and I'm screwed here. I can't win a road scholarship against these people. They are all highly smart, highly competent. They've all won university medals and I don't have any of that sort of stuff. So I was like, I'm I'm done here. And I and I made the short list. So I'm celebrating having got this far. You know, it was a noble, a noble effort. And I was like, so as a memento, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a spoon. That's got a little Parliament House kind of kind of crest on it. It's just a pocket of teaspoon. And you know, in years to come, I'll go, here's my teaspoon from the, the time I was almost a Rhodes Scholar. Anyway, the evening went on. I actually forgot to nick the teaspoon, which turned out to be a good thing because as you leave Parliament House, you go through metal detectors. And I'm pretty sure that things would have got awkward. Yeah, exactly. If I'd triggered the, the metal detector on the way out of the Parliament House dinner the night before the, the, the interview. And then for the interview itself, and this kind of connects maybe in some way to the, the reinvention question you kind of theme you picked up at the start in similar which is like i can't really compete on a on a level playing field with these people because they are smarter than me and you know some of them are Olymp- olympians and some of them are doctors and some of them have started you know non-profits that are saving lives and i've kind of got a mishmash of stuff but none of that so i made sure that i dressed differently. It's just one thing, but it was a symbol. So everybody else showed up in blue suits and white shirts and red ties for men and pearls for women. I had long blonde hair. I had all my earrings in. So I had like three or four earrings in. I had a purple jacket, a pink tie dyed tie. And I was like, this is me. I've got kind of blonde tips in my hair. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm either going to come a distant last or I might scrape into a, a first position. There's no there's no middle ground here for me. And through through whatever, that seemed to work. So I won the Rhodes Scholarship and, you know, as I say, that changed everything. And left a teaspoon and in I left Parliament a teaspoon House. Behind. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I, so here's – because I'm, I'm not very smart. After I finished the interview, I, I then stole a, a coat hanger out of the coat rack of the fancy place that I knew where I was interviewed. Cause I'm like, okay, I've got the teaspoon. I'm still not going to get an interview, but I'll use this coat hanger as my memento of getting a Rose scholarship. Anyways, I'm walking out feeling very relieved. Thank goodness it's over holding a coat hanger. And I'm met by an interviewer for the bulletin magazine. Now I'm not sure the bulletin exists anymore, but in its time, it was the peak news magazine in Australia. It's like time magazine, the equivalent of, and they were doing a whole thing on road scholars. So I was interviewed for that. I'm going through this whole interview, holding a coat hanger going, this is Michael, you've got to stop stealing stuff. It just doesn't end well. Mementos. Well, just in case anyone listens just to that bit, acquiring mementos along the way. Now, we'll talk about reinvention because I'm really interested the open loop you had at the start. But, but before we go there, playfulness, 
Mm. Knowing you, seeing you, watching you. There's a real playfulness to your work. There's a yeah. real playfulness to you. Talk to me about the dance between playfulness and curiosity. Good question. <laughs> yeah. Wrap it up, Wiz. We got him. Well, there's one part of me that is just, it seems to have been wired pretty much from birth to be interested in in difference, zigging when other people zag. And uh, I quite like challenging convention and I quite like being a little bit provocative. Can Not you tell me, can we, just on the birth, tell me more. Like what, uh, what, what's, what's the origin or what's the genesis there? I, I'm not sure. You know, there's not. I don't have an. I don't have an origin story. You know, I wasn't bitten by a spider, and and this turned. Out. I just have always had a degree of being aware of, of what different was and kind of wanting to stand out in some ways, and having a degree of fearlessness around that, um, and kind of like I'm willing to do that. And so that I think because it takes you onto the edge, out of. Well, this is a this is a huge question for me. It actually connects back to power for me. It turns out that one of the things that I'm interested in is trying to disrupt how power works. We talked a bit about it earlier with the, the subtle impact of what being more coach-like and asking good questions is. It's a disruption of a, a hierarchy, a disruption of power. But I've got that showing up in all sorts of different ways. Now, I really benefit from the status quo. Can I tick all the boxes of dudes who benefit from the status quo. You know, I'm a white, tall, straight, overeducated, road scholar, best-selling, hetero, cis, gendered, male. I've got all of that. So for me, the status quo is set up for my success. And there's a part of me, and I really don't know where this comes from. I don't have a I don't have a, a place where I'm like, this is the moment when, where I'm like, how do I try and shift that so other people get to share some of that and what i think that means is you start seeing curiosity as part of it because curiosity allows you to get over there and actually understand other people curiosity allows you to try and understand the rules that are unspoken or unconscious or or more hidden and playfulness is you know in some ways it just comes from you know I had I, parents who had a good sense of humor. So that's that, and kind of what grew up watching British humor. So that sense of anarchic, the goodies and Monty Python and the good life and kind of this British sense of humor. But there's also a way that humor disrupts the status quo as well. Because humor is based on an unexpected twist on what you thought was going to happen. That's how a joke lands. You're expecting this and something, and this happens instead. And so there's a way that humor is one of the most effective ways of challenging authority. So I might be, I probably am kind of over, you know, over retroactively making all of this kind of feel like a coherent narrative. But there is a way that these are threads that are, are woven together for me, braided together around. It's one of the ways to, for me, one of the things that I am is like I'm a thought leader. And I'm quite allergic to being a guru <laughs> in this space because there's a lot of thought leaders who take themselves very seriously and are very pompous and seem to thrive on creating envy to who they are. 
Whereas part of what I like to, you know, in my introduction, when you're like, he's been sued by a professor and banned from high school for the balloon incident. I'm like, I'm trying to dismantle and have people laugh at me because humor is a way of allowing you still to be a teacher and have influence, but also not take it too seriously, which allows other people into that space. I've just learned a fair bit about you. There, there, there's a resonance and depth you dropped into then. Have yeah. you spoken about that disruption of power much? Have you articulated that much? I haven't. And, you know, four years ago, I stopped being the CEO of Box of Crayons, the company I founded. And I'm really proud that I managed to have do that transition without screwing it up because founders notoriously screw that up. And one of the things going, that helped going through similar challenges. Yeah, exactly. Because the they're like, I like most founders are like, I can't wait to give all of this up, except for the things that I want to keep my fingers stuck in. And then it all gets complicated. One of the things that helped was I did an exercise called The Dig with a woman called Erin Weed. And over uh, two, three hour conversations over Zoom, she asked me to tell stories and she built out a, a inf- an ecosystem of what matters to me using language. And I was pretty skeptical about this because I was like, I'm a good facilitator. So if you don't, if you're not a good facilitator, that's going to be difficult and sounds a bit woo woo and you know, who knows? And like, I think I know what my, my things are. They're like curiosity and possibilities and creativity and coaching, all the stuff that, you know, I present and what I've got a reputation for, but it's very in, in, interesting. Three words, confident, because I am confident and because I give others confidence um, forward because I am restless and I really get bogged down in, in the, and I'm restless with status quo, but I'm also kind of onto the next thing. And I'm also not likely to linger over shame or embarrassment or failure, but the key word is power. And so that was a, that was, I was like so surprised and it suddenly felt very true and real. And it was the first time I'd ever really heard it said like that. And I'm just going through another process at the moment to kind of go, what, what am I trying to stand for? And what am I wrestling with? And I think it might be disruption of power. And part of what I like about that is I have no idea what to do with that. And one of my favorite poems is um, Rilke's A Man Watching. One of the lines in that is his goal is not to win. His goal is to be deeply defeated by ever greater things. And I'm at a place in my life where I'm like, I don't, I'm the winning is less interesting being deeply defeated by ever greater things. I, I want to have the courage to do that. I can see the thought bubbles. I can see the machination turning inside yeah. you. I get the feeling this is a book we might see coming up, the disruption of power. You are disruptive, disruptive in the way you dress for a so-called typical lawyer, road scholar. Yeah. Uh, creativity, you know, it, and I know it's not like this at all. Research is starting to disprove this. While there is some left brain, left right brain dominance, but the typical lawyers aren't creative. Right. Uh, getting colorful so you've always disrupted but adding this notion of power onto it yeah interested to see where this goes and that could tie me in to reinvention now we've got one open loop a couple of questions i was thinking about on this and some of this was connecting with pod as well do you reinvent yourself due to boredom do you reinvent yourself due to challenge 
Is it fear of irrelevance? Is it compulsive striving? Or is it something we've totally missed? It's partly kind of getting to a top of an S-curve. And I'm like, I don't, I, I get a bit restless and I get a bit bored. And it kind of connecting to this this poem by Rilke, to be deeply defeated by ever greater things, means you kind of have to to leave an old self behind and step into a new self. So in my last couple of books, you know, I've talked about this idea that's not my idea, but uh, it's out there, which is like, you know, present you and future you, and how for you to step into what future you requires, requires you to say no to some fundamental things about present you. So it requires you to kind of relearn an identity, I think. Now, lots of who I am doesn't change. You know, when I reinvent myself, you know, I don't change my sense of humor. I don't really change my values. I am changing the clothes I put on, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically. I'm I'm changing the context in which people find me. I'm finding new things to teach or talk about. That that other next my my best guess at my next most best most useful contribution, so it feels less a I don't know a reinvention rather than a oh, I'm not sure what the metaphor is I was going to say peeling an onion but that's the the tiredest of metaphors evolution um, not revolution yeah an evolution like it's like a maybe it's like a a twist of a kaleidoscope. It's like it's the same gems in there. Um, it's in the same container, but twisting the kaleidoscope has shifted things and the light's coming through in a different way. Is that for you or is it for your audience? For you being to stay fresh, to stay engaged, to stay curious, for your audience to see you're evolving, to keep booking you, keep buying your books? I have a pretty strong sense of service baked in. So I'm trying to solve problems. I'm trying to, the, the evolution happens for me. The act of service, may, you know, hopefully I keep being useful for people and trying to, to figure out stuff and giving, give them tools that feel practical and simple and provocative to them. Well, it's working because you have people around the world wanting to work with you. I'm conscious of time. I know you're heading into another meeting. So I've got a call out and a question. Yeah. Call out, first of all, people who are listening to this or watching this on YouTube and they want to get more of you, including your new book. I've got a bookshelf almost with a whole section, or it's not almost, there's a whole section uh, dedicated to MBS, How to Work with Almost Anyone, written yeah. with your humor, with your curiosity, with your practicality, great book for anyone who Thank wants you. to work with a diverse bunch of people in this complicated yeah. hybrid world. But for people who want to find you, buy you, where's the best place to go? Yeah. If you go to mbs.works, that's the website, and, you know, and that opens up all sorts of doors. That shows you what my socials are. If you're interested in the new book, bestpossiblerelationship.com is the URL for that. And there's downloads and bits and pieces there as well. And we'll put all those URLs in the show notes. So I've got to finish with a question. I think a wise man made this question up in a seven-step framework. <laughs> what was most useful for you today in our conversation? It was, there, it was interesting to have that last question around creativity and playfulness connect to power for me because I hadn't made that connection before. How about for you? What landed for you in all of this? Two things. You do a hell of a lot more work behind the scenes than you let on, young man. 
Uh, I can see the work you do, the reps and sets that you do to make this look easy. And, and the second part is the authenticity. I can still see the joy, the energy that the, you light up when you talk about this. I, I get to meet and like you do work with some wonderful people. When you've been doing what you've been doing for 30 years, that's not an overnight success. But to keep working on the craft, but to love it, so the second thing, I can still see you're in flow. This is your purpose. This is your calling. And I, yeah. I feel that. I see that. Thank you. Yeah, I feel seen. I appreciate that. Hi, it's Andrew, and I'm not back in the studio. I'm sitting by the beach. My partner and four kids are playing nearby. I've got Padrego Sullivan or Pod. Pod, you are multi-layered when it comes to me. You're my study buddy from university. We did coaching psychology masters together. You are one of Australia, correction, one of the world's leading leadership experts. You're on a plane off to America not long after this conversation. And you are the man that is responsible for the conversation that I had with Michael Bungay-Stania or MBS. So multi-leveled introduction. Welcome. You're going to do this reflection. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. And we share the same hairstyle. There you go. And, and, and another connection. <laughs> and we both go down to Jaroa a lot. Only difference being I stay in, in a mate of mine's house. You stay in the house that you bought. But that really, really worries me. I should have bought that <laughs> Something we can control and something that will reduce my blood pressure. <laughs> Rather Indeed. than miss real estate opportunities. MBS, you've had a listen to the interview. You, Michael and I sat down 18 to 20 months ago and you started the relationship that allowed that conversation. So I'm curious, what did you take out of that, that chat with Michael? Yeah, who would have thought that COVID would have catalyzed so many different relationships in many different ways and uh, this being one of them. Like, I, I was really excited when you messaged me a few weeks ago saying that you and Michael get together because you both, for me, uh, are really curious and interested people who are always exploring ideas and trying to figure out what's behind something or somebody. So to hear you both in the same conversation was great. I really enjoyed it. I listened to this morning ahead of chatting to you today. A few things struck me, you know, um, but first of all, as I said, you, you're both very curious people. So to hear you both in the same conversation was great. What I also enjoyed about this conversation and having known both of you for quite a while, it didn't surprise me. But one of the reasons that you're both so interesting to me is that you're, you're curious in general, but you're also reflective of where you guys have made mistakes. And therefore, what does that mean? And uh, Andrew, I enjoyed your reflection about going from being a keynote speaker to being a podcaster. And, and you know, realizing your first couple of episodes are actually you still being a keynote speaker with, a, with someone in front of you as, as opposed to a whole audience. And You're being in, polite. They were horrible pod. I was talking <laughs> over, talking at, I think it was like, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Mays, and you know, you walk onto the stage because you do multi-layered communication as well. You podcast, you facilitate beautifully, you coach, you keynote, you lead. I hadn't made that shift. And, and when I've listened back to a couple, it was, yeah, it was like a car crash. But, but that's how you've become a great podcaster, right? And uh, when we think about Michael's book, The Advice, Taming the Advice Monster, as he quite rightly said in, in your interview, a lot of his learnings came from him realizing he was doing the same thing. He was just always giving advice. Some of it worked, but most of it didn't uh, until he realized, oh, you know, I'm falling to my own habits here. So, you know, so my, my, my first big reflection was uh, the learnings that people have from their own mistakes can turn into great resources for other people if they're willing to pause and understand it and then you know tell it in, in some interesting way with 
which uh, which this podcast absolutely did. So so that was great to hear that. I wasn't surprised, but I was I wasn't surprised to hear Michael talking about the coach he had because he's as you said sold over a million books. He's famous for this. It's a great book. Like you, I've given it out to hundreds of people. But as he was talking about it, and this is really funny, I suddenly realized I used that process three times in the last week with three different CEO clients, and I didn't even realize I was doing it until he reminded me about the questions. I went, oh yeah, of course, I've really learned that process. And it's simple, but it's profoundly helpful. So you only realized you'd use that process. So you were using it subconsciously. So when you listened to us talking about that, you went, oh, light bulb moment, I've done that this week yeah, without realizing. And of course, I've, um, you know, part of the simplicity and beauty of the coaching habit is the questions make perfect sense. Michael has done a great job of distilling all of the surplus noise down to these are the questions, and more importantly, these are the exact words in the questions to use. And if you buy into the notion of the book, then it's worthwhile learning those questions because they work. And so clearly I've learned them a long time ago and I've used them thousands of times. So they're now innate, but I hadn't realized how innate they were until he started walking through the questions and I went, oh yeah. So as an example, um, I was with one coaching client today, a really successful CEO running you know, like a billion dollar business. And he was walking through some challenges in, in, for him in his business. And I asked him, you know, what's the real challenge here for you? Which I'd forgotten until I heard you and, he, and Michael talking. But guess what, Andrew? The challenge that was there for him was dramatically different to what I was presuming. And it was actually dramatically different to what he was talking about until he paused to go, well, actually the real challenge for me is actually something completely different. And once we uncover that, then we had a really helpful conversation. And I was with a, a client only yesterday morning, mid Friday morning, and I was thinking on my way into that session, my coaching sessions with her, she's in the healthcare area, a really innovative entrepreneurial doctor. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not doing any work coming to these sessions, like I'm not even preparing anything. I'm wondering, is there any value here for her? And so I asked her the question along the way, look, I need to understand what's useful in this conversation for you. Because in my own mind, I'm thinking, I'm not sure there is. <laughs> and she goes, the most useful thing for me is the half an hour before I call you because it forces me to contemplate on what I've been doing because every other minute for the next month, I'm just trying to focus on solving problems. And I keep forgetting how far I've come. And it's only in this conversation that I realize how far I've come. Now, I would never have known that. So thank you, Michael, for the simplicity and beauty of those questions. Just picking up on two of those threads. One is I caught up with a CEO this week. It's a top 30 ASX organization. He's been there less than a year. So it's been a big year for him. Lots of change, lots of excitement, lots of opportunity. He said something similar. So I've had MBS rattling in my head this last week. So MBS, we need to make sure that you listen to this because your coaching habit is infiltrating our practice without us even realizing. But I did realize in this conversation because uh, this CEO said to me, Andrew, I really like the process or the accountability, knowing I'm going to see you, and you ask me for your homework. And then he, he just spoke through what he's been doing, and it was similar to what Michael said. You know, he had a colleague ring him up and said, look, I know you're going to ask me this, and then I'm going to ask you this. And he basically just sat there while his colleague went through the whole process. And pretty well, that's what this client did. So he, he went through, he said, look, I know what you would say now, and you would ask me this. And so I'm just sitting there, and I, and I had that. I suppose the little bit of imposter syndrome that, that comes forward at times. 
why am I getting paid for this? <laughs> but then I actually realized when I left, yeah, a CEO, when you're at the top, it can be quite lonely. And, and to have that accountability, have someone you can talk to in a trusted space that can guide the conversation and listen, but also give you some suggestions and not, you know, I think the challenge for a lot of people high up pod, and this is the space that you occupy a lot of your time, is they're, they're so used to telling other people, it's a bit like the keynote story, but to have people they trust or get some advice around them, it's really important that people at that top level do. So I've realized the coaching happens helping me in that as well. So MBS, your ripple effect on that book is profound. Yes, absolutely. And a million copies sold so far. Oh, you're, a, you're an author, don't you wish? Isn't it a, a wild dream of any author to have one oh 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 copies? Yes, superb. And I'm sure it'll be two oh 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 in the next couple of years because it, uh, it's, uh, and Mike is right, you know, once you get to a certain level, it, the, the level just takes over itself and keeps rippling, particularly if it's a, a really useful book. And, uh, and uh, The Coaching Habit is a very useful book to lots of people. And uh, I'm going to an airport uh, tomorrow morning. I suspect I won't have a handbag, but if I did, his book is the kind of book I'd be putting into my handbag to read on the airplane because it's, it's so useful. Well, that's maybe a subtle suggestion, Paul, because we're going to get you back on the podcast early next year because the episode that you did, and we also got an Irish buddy of yours, Dr. Tom Buckley as well, when we riffed last time, it's one of the most popular episodes. So we'll get you back early next year and that's a thank you gift. I'm gonna send you a little handbag, how's that? <laughs> oh, you're, a, you're, you're a man that's interesting, Andrew. <laughs> hey, Andrew, can, can I say one more thing about the the, uh, the podcast for, for you and Michael? And it was, it was more towards the end of, of the uh, the conversation and, and I'm sure it's something that you'd like to delve into another time with him in more detail. But he's talking about uh, his latest book, um, you know, about, about relationships, how, you know, how to work with almost anyone. And he's, he's outlined some, you know, five really simple questions to help you or anybody get to know a colleague. And what struck me about that is as you know, I, I do a lot of work with leadership teams and typically we bring teams away for two or three days, you know, offsite. Without fail, the feedback we always get is about a particular process that we call stories of origin, but it does, doesn't make a difference what it's called. But it's basically a deep dive for each leader into how they became the person they've, they've become and then for them to share that with their colleagues. And some of the questions in that process include the relationships in their past working relationships particularly that haven't worked and what they've learned about it and what they bring it into this team and invariably that leads to great conversations about you know there's a working style i like but more importantly i actually have messed up relationships with my peers in the past here's the mistakes i've made i don't want to do that with this team and that sparks a fantastic uh, deep trusting um relationship that i think michael referred to as i thou you know that more personal type so, you know, that latest book that he has, again, it's another book you can put into your handbag in the airport and read on the plane. But I, I think it's actually going to be another profound book in terms of teams and how they can use that questions to help each other have a you know, far more successful relationship as a, as a group than they might have had in the past. We definitely need to get you a man bag. Hold think so you can put all these books in your satchel as you travel. The other reflection I had, and it was actually through the podcast, but upon listening to it, and you know this as a podcaster, when you're in the conversation, you follow a rough framework, but you're listening, you know, the wonderful lesson that Dr. Tony Grant taught us that 
Sydney University is you have two ears, one mouth. And I think that's a really good balance for podcasting. But then when I listened back, I really noted the honesty and authenticity Michael had when I got towards the end of the interview and said, so what's next? And he said, I don't really know. I'm like, do you reinvent because you're bored or do you reinvent because you love reinventing? I don't really know. So you could actually hear him thinking. And when we got, uh, when we finished the interview, he actually said, thank you for asking that. He said, it's really got me thinking. I said, well, I could hear you thinking as we went through. And he said, yeah, I was. So I love that you've got someone like Michael, uh, you know, from the outside looking in, you go, he's got this wonderful book. He's got a global audience. He only says yes to a certain number of keynotes. He's been rocking it out on stages, platforms, facilitating for decades, but he still drops his guard and says, yeah, I don't really know. I'm not sure. So there's a real humanness there, a real authenticity. And I love that warmth, uh, getting that warmth from him in the interview. Because, you know, sometimes I, I won't say names, but there you know, could be people that occupy some of the same space. There is one guy who talks about purpose. And I've heard this guy interviewed a lot of times. And I just want to hear him drop his guard, but he's always on. And every answer with every interview I've heard with this guy, it sounds similar. But with MBS, it was it was real, it was natural, and I really appreciated that. And and yeah, I agree with you. Um, and um, you know, Michael really role models what he writes about, you know, which is even you know, more endearing and uh, more 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 truthful, I suppose, in that regard. It also then goes to uh, his innate curiosity. He actually doesn't know what's next, but he's keen to find out. Yeah, and, and I think the, um, like I heard you asking him about reinvention, and I suspect that's a, a podcast, a whole episode, you know, you could have with Michael on reinvention. But I've no doubt the uh, desire to explore what could be next is a core precursor to his reinvention piece. So uh, mm. uh, it's a great question, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad, you, glad you asked him that. I think that might be the open loop that we pick up on early next year, reinvention, because I know you've just told me before we press record that you've started another business. So I think you're the master of reinvention. So let's get you back on in the new year. Talk about the wonderful work you're doing in leadership and a bit of re, bit of reinvention, bit of recharge, bit of renewal. Would love to. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the conversation. It's been fun. Yeah, love catching up and uh, good luck with your sojourn to America. I'm yes, I'm going, I'm going to see uh, Three Harshmen play in Las Vegas in a band called U2. Can't wait for that. Uh, how horrible would have it been if we had this discussion? Because Dr. Tom Buckley listens to most of the podcast. He would have chastised me. I was actually going to say a U2 song before, but what I have learned, the difference between keynote speaking and podcasting, you don't interrupt. So when you were talking before, the song, the U2 song, and we'll make sure we put this in, Wizard, is get out of your own way. <laughs> Nice one. Nice one. And on that note. <laughs> All right, buddy. Take care. See you, folks. See you, man.